Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. We're actually going to look partly at uh, the text that Bob read a little bit earlier. And as you find that place, Luke 12, I'll tell you a little story. There was a certain man who grew up in church. He attended faithfully, uh, loved singing hymns, you know, really loved those hard-hitting sermons, uh, enjoyed fellowship with his Sunday school class and prayer meetings and potlucks and his favorite pew. And everyone knew the man because he was very well liked. He was friendly and kind. But there was something in the man's life that people didn't know about. The man had grown up in the church. His parents uh, were Christians. And growing up as a boy, he was a hard worker, but he never gave anything to the Lord. He always saved it and figured that it was his parents' responsibility to give. And so he would um, just save his money because he wanted to go to college. And he knew that the Lord would probably want him to have a good education. So work he did and save he did and being industrious, he saved much and spent little. And finally, he was able to go to college where he received a full scholarship and never had to use the money which he diligently saved for that purpose. And so then he decided to keep that money. And when he graduated from business college, he would use it to start a business. And so that's what he also did. And his business flourished and uh, just exploded. He had a lot of wealth, a lot of holdings, and they were increasing. And though he wasn't living at home anymore, still in his mind, he thought, you know, I don't want to give this away because I need to build my business. And once it gets large enough, then I will really be able to be generous and give to the Lord's work. Well, his business grew and his fortune swelled and his holdings increased. And he never married because wives and children are expensive. (laughs) After all, he was trying to be a wise steward of his money. And he would regularly remind himself of the proverb, which said, the hand of the diligent is made rich. One day at church, a friend asked him if he mailed his checks in or gave online. He never saw him ever put anything in the plate after many, many years. And this kind of took him back and he was a little bit scared. And he, the only thing he could think the reply was, I try to be anonymous. It was then that he realized he wasn't setting a good example. So he decided to change his ways. And so every opportunity he could, he would just give a little. So that he would be a good example to other people as they would see him give. The years rolled on. He began to have health problems. By this time, his fortune was great. He had many friends because of his wealth. But none of them were very close to him. None of them really knew him personally. And it was then that he decided that he probably should have a will. And make sure that when he died, his fortune would go to the right places. So he thought about it long and hard and finally decided that he would make sure he left some to the city to restore a neighborhood he grew up in, which had become run down. He left some to the hospital that saved his life when he had heart problems. Another portion he left to a college where he had learned his business practices. He donated some to the city library, some to the government-sponsored food pantry for the homeless. His house and belongings he left to a faithful Buddhist gardener who had been kind to him for many years. And eventually he died, and many came to his funeral. And many spoke, and many people said a lot of nice things about him, and they sang his favorite hymns and preached on his favorite text. But little did anyone know that the man perished in hell. One of the greatest indicators of our walk with the Lord is what we do with what we have and how we act towards what we don't have. And this is what Jesus is going to address this morning in our text in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. I just want you to know, it is a convicting text. 
it's going to be painful. So let's get with it so we can get it over with and hopefully change and be happy after that. (laughs) Jesus has a way of just hunting us down with these parables. If you don't, if you've never studied the parables, they just, they just kind of creep up on you. And then out comes the two by four, the whack in the side of the head. And you realize you've been got. Well, we've been learning that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples about two things, not having ungodly fear, but having godly fear. Not having the fear of men, but the fear of God. Why does he need to address this? Because Jesus has offended the religious leaders. They are there behind him, angry, furious, hostile, trying to trap him in something he might say. And then there are this, this huge multitude, thousands of people. They're stepping on each other. It's, the crowd's been growing for a chapter and a half. It's just huge. And then in between these hostile religious leaders and this gigantic crowd is this group of disciples. And he's addressing the disciples, but with an earshot of the religious leaders in the crowd. Of course, the disciples are feeling scared because Jesus has offended the leaders and offended the crowd. And the crowd and the leaders are against Jesus and they've sided with Jesus. Jesus sees their fear and decides to address their fear. So in verses 1 through 12, he warns us about... Hypocrisy warns us about fearing men, warns us about denying him before men, and warns us about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he keeps on addressing certain fears all the way down through verse 32. And this brings us to our text for this morning, Luke 12, 13 through 21. You can follow along as I read. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to him, beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, a land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, from this text, I want to point out to you four different warnings you must heed in order to escape the sin of greed. So you won't be accounted a fool by God when you die. The first is found in verse 13. Beware of sinning to get what you want. Look at verse 13. Keep in mind the context. Huge crowd. Disciples. Angry religious leaders. Some guy in this gigantic crowd pops up and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now just think about that. Would you do that? That is amazing, isn't it? What does that tell you about the guy? I mean, he stands up, he's brazen, he's desperate, he's what? What would cause somebody to do that? Obviously, he doesn't care about his brother. Obviously, he has no real desire to honor his brother. He's making his brother look bad. He's implying that he's a victim. He's implying that his brother is some sort of mean ogre. And... But why would he do it in the crowd? Well, because he's trying to use the crowd and Jesus's verdict as an instrument of manipulation to get what he wants. He's trying to use Jesus in the crowd to get at what he perceives is his inheritance. This is bad. Solomon warns us in Proverbs 1, 15 through 19, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path for their feet run 
to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. There's always people who want you to gain by violence, gain by wickedness, do something to get what you want, even if it's sinful, even if it's wrong. After all, everybody's doing it. It's so common. I mean, they were, our world is saturated with it. Proverbs 10.2 says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 21.6 says, The acquisition of a treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor in the pursuit of death. You know what? You can increase your wealth by being dishonest, ungodly, violent. There's no doubt you can rob banks, you can cheat, you can lie, you can steal, you can falsify things, and you can get ahead. There's no doubt. But that kind of wealth, though it may make you increase in your worldly, worth, earth, earthly possessions, it makes you decrease in God's sight. And here the man is trying to use Jesus and the crowd to get at what he wants. And you can also tell that Somebody who would do this is he, he's angry at his brother. And maybe he wants to get back at his brother. So there's probably a little anger, a little revenge. And driving it all is what? Greed. Greed. You know, I have seen brothers and sisters go to court and fight each other to try and get some more of some inheritance that they haven't earned or even deserve. They sick their lawyers on each other, gobble up thousands of dollars to get more money. What's amazing is these these brothers and sisters, before the money came along, were fine. They trusted each other implicitly. But man, after the the hope of money shows up, it's like the gold rush. It's, you know, kill and be killed. It's do whatever you can. It's get stubborn. It's hate the person. It's never speak to them again so you can have some grubby bucks. Just something to gain changes everything. It causes greed, the hope of what might be spent, pleasures of the world, and all those things get in your mind and you begin to hope for them. You hope for them so much you're willing to hate other people. It's diabolical. And it happens all the time, even among those who profess to know Christ. And you know what? Jesus will have no part in this. Look what he says in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? That's all he says to the guy. He doesn't answer his question. He won't dialogue with him anymore. He just says, who said I'm your judge or arbiter? End of discussion. He's not going to go there. But. Since the whole crowd heard the guy stand up and say that, all of his disciples and the religious leaders, Jesus says, well, this is a good teaching opportunity. Everything was a teaching opportunity. And so he decides to do a little teaching, but he refuses to let this man manipulate him to get at his inheritance. You know, I have people call me up sometimes. Pastor Hughes, yes. Um, hi, I'm from such and such. And I said, okay, great. I said, what can I do for you? And then they give me this big pitch about their ministry and or what they want me to support or they go on and on. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. I said, well, we have a missions committee. Oh, well, I already talked to them. Oh, so why are you talking to me? Well, I thought if, you know, the guy at the top of the food chain, you know, that since I'm Everybody knows I make all the decisions in the church. Everybody knows I'm in total, absolute power. Not. You know, I just tell them over and over again, I don't run the church. I preach. And we have elders who do that, and I'm just one of them. And we have faithful people we assign to other ministries. And the reason we assign them is so I don't have to make the decision. So why are you already trying to come to me to get a different decision when you've already got the answer? manipulation that's why they're sinning for the lord we look at our lives we say well are we doing anything like this are we sinning to get what we want usually 
Usually that's why we sin, to get something we want. And it's covetousness, it's greed. You know, people sin so they can enjoy immorality. People are greedy and they want free music, so they steal downloads from each other. Um, They lie on their taxes so they don't have to pay, you know, cash under the table. So no one has to walk. So watch and no one notices and I don't have to play workman's comp and I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. It saves me money if I lie and cheat and steal and defraud. I get what I want that way because I covet that extra money. I covet it. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's the setting aside of what God wants and the worship of things or pleasure that you can get before God. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, when he's speaking to the Corinthians about all these sins which are characteristics of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous. Synonym for greed. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, but such were some of you. Now that you've come to Christ, you're no longer that way. That doesn't, that isn't characteristic of your life anymore. Yeah, you may fall into it periodically, but it doesn't characterize the normal pattern of your life. And so if you look at your life and you realize, you know what? I'm sinning to get certain things. You just need to confess that to the Lord. You need to repent of it because if you don't, you know what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. One, it's going to be an indicator that you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God or two, If you do happen to know the Lord and you're still dabbling in these unrighteous ways of gaining whatever it is you're trying to get by sinning, your spiritual life is stagnating right now. I can guarantee that you probably don't like reading the Bible. You don't like praying. You don't like serving and you don't like Christians getting close to your life. Do you know why? Because you have things to hide. And you just kind of just stagnate there spiritually like a scum-filled pond until you confess your sins, till you can repent of it, turn from it, and begin to be honest in the way you acquire things. There's a lot of things God wants us to have, but we can go after them in an ungodly way, just like this man in the crowd. Well, leaving the man in the crowd, and Jesus' response to him, now we move on to more convicting things be on guard against greed look at verse 15 then he said to them now who is them he was just talking to the man the man stood up the man made the comment it he said i'm not your judge or arbiter then he said to them who's them well it's either the religious leaders the crowd of the disciples or all the above how do we know who he's talking to well we know from verse 22 that he's speaking to his disciples which he also refers to as little flock in verse 32. But if you look over at verse 41 of chapter 12, it's also clear that Jesus seems to be addressing the crowd or everyone because Peter in verse 41, after a different parable, says, Lord, are are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? So it's obvious that everybody's hearing Jesus and even Peter doesn't know Are you just speaking only to us? Are you speaking to everyone? And when you get down to verse 54, you'll see that. And he was also saying to the crowd. So the answer them is everyone, not just that single man. So Jesus is speaking to everyone. Look at the middle of verse 15. And he says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Here, Jesus pulls out the double barrel shotgun two commands side by side. And he lets us have it. Beware and be on guard. Beware means to continually look out for, to keep watch over. It's a present active command, which means we are to always beware. Be on guard is a little bit different tense, which means we need to participate in the process of guarding 
our lives from something which we know, he goes on to say, every form of greed. Together, he's really describing in these two commands that greed is something which is sneaky, which is subtle, which kind of just pounces upon us. That, that you know, it's like you're walking through a jungle and you know there's a tiger out there that's hunting and hungry and you have to go through the jungle, jungle and at any moment that tiger could jump out at you. Well, the tiger here is greed. And he says at any moment, at any place, you could be ambushed by this monster, this beast called greed. It's a shapeshifter. It's a chameleon. It comes at you in all different forms, even religious forms. I mean, you can, you know, it's amazing how many things we can lust after. You could be sitting there in the pew. And looking at that piano going, I wish I had that black shiny thing in my house. And oh, look at that woman's dress. And oh, look at that guy's suit. Or oh, look at that person's hairdo. Or oh, look at that. I mean, we could just, you know, sit here and just covet ourselves into the grave. I mean, it can happen anywhere, anytime. There is coveting that can go on in our houses, in our hearts. So Jesus just says, just keep Watch, be on guard, beware all the time. Because greed's one of those things that can just hit you when you're not ready, when you don't expect it, when you least expect it. Greed is the sin of setting your heart upon something in order to hoard it or keep it or consume it with no desire to glorify God or bless others, love others with it. And greed or covetous is the granddaddy of all sins. You know why that is? Because pretty much all other sins come from our desire to have something, a coveting of something we don't right now have. For instance, consider the Ten Commandments. Why would anyone put something else before God? Because they covet what they might get from that thing. Why would you worship an idol and serve an idol? Because you covet what that idol might give you. Why would you use the Lord's name in vain? Because you covet the freedom to say what you want when you want. Why would you break the Sabbath? Because you covet the ability to do what you want on that day. Why would you not honor your father and mother? Because you covet the desire to do what you want without having to honor your father and mother. And why would you murder? Because you covet the pleasure you receive from revenge. From personally executing your own judgment. And why would you commit adultery because you covet somebody else's wife or husband and you want pleasure that is forbidden, so you covet it? Why would you steal because you covet something you don't want to pay for that someone else has? Why would you bear false witness because you covet some advantage you're going to gain from lying? And you remember what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. There's, it's not a mistake that God put that command at the end of the list. It's at the end of the list because it is this, the seed, the spawn of all the other commands. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, James says. Yeah. So coveting is huge. It's huge. And this man in the crowd, he's consumed with it. He wants that inheritance. Or at least a piece of it. Solomon teaches us in Proverbs 10:22 that wealth is the blessing of the Lord that he is the one who makes rich. Now think about that. You think, "Well, aren't you telling us that we shouldn't want things?" No. No. Are you telling us that riches are bad? No. But being really wealthy is bad? No. God only gives good gifts, and one of the gifts he gives is riches. It's great. Have lots of money. As one famous missionary said, I try and make as much money as I can so I can give as much as I can away. Great. You know, riches is not the problem here. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. We're not talking about quantities of possessions or riches. 
in this. I just want to make that clear because sometimes you can think, well, you know, I've got this gigantic house and, you know, I've got, you know, well, another cabin and, oh, and I got an apartment complex and I've got a, you know, I mean, you may think oh, I, I, you're talking to me. I'm talking to everybody. Whether you're poor or whether you're rich in your own eyes, I'm talking to everybody. The problem is greed, not wealth. You know, it's like a baseball bat. Is a baseball bat good or bad? Well, it's good to play baseball, bad to hit somebody with. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. You know, are guns okay? Sure, they're fine to go hunting and shooting and whatever. They're bad if you kill people with them. God gives us a lot of things, and they're all good gifts until we use them in an evil way or for an evil purpose. And that's how it is with wealth. Wealth is great. It gives us power. It gives us opportunities to bless. It gives us opportunities to glorify God, to make friends for ourselves, as Jesus says in one text, by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, that is, when earthly money is done away with, those friends you have won to Christ will receive you into eternal dwellings. You remember the text he just read earlier from Matthew 6? Do you remember that text where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now let me ask you this. What treasures are you able to store up in heaven? You know, there's only a few things we can take from here to there. Think about that. What would that be? Well, it's not furniture. It's not money. It's not real estate. It's not clothing, it's not pairs of shoes, um, not golf equipment or hunting equipment or tools even, which is very sad. (laughs) What are we going to take with us? Well, here are the two things. People who have been one to Christ and godly character. That's all. So when Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures on earth... He's saying what? Win people to Christ and disciple them in the Lord. That's it. That's what you can take to heaven. And that's all you can take to heaven. You know, there's, you can get all your resources and, you know, distill them down into platinum bars and put them in your coffin. They're going to stay in a hole in the ground. And somebody's going to dig them up later and be really happy. And like King Tut's tomb. That you're not going to take them. Sorry. All those things that they buried in the tombs of the pharaohs are still there. Or people plundered them and took them. Now they're in the British Museum. (laughs) But wealth is a great thing because it's, it's something really cool. We can do cool stuff with it. I mean, it's neat to be able to see somebody with a need, not say anything, and anonymously give to that person. Many years ago, there was a college student that Lisa and I knew about, and she was needing money for books. And so we had some money that we were going to give to her. So we just went down and got $1 bills. And uh, it got all new $1 bills and wrapped them in this bundle. And then I went to her car and I picked the lock on her car. <laughs> it's one of my gifts. <laughs> Anyways, and then we put it in her car and just closed, locked it back up. And you know what was neat is, is, you know, she never knew where the money came from. And we didn't care. Because we knew that she told so many people about how God had blessed her. That is such a neat thing to do. You need to give to people when they don't know. You need to give to people when they don't know where it's coming from. Anonymously. And just be a blessing to people. It is so cool. It is life. You you gain by giving. You know, it's like you're going to the hospital. You have to go visit somebody. It's like, oh, I got to go to the hospital. I'm trying to get my sermon down. Okay, okay, I'm going to go to the hospital. You go to the hospital. You know, this week I went and four different people are at the hospital. And you, you go around and visit all these people at the end of the day and go, man, those people blessed me. They blessed me. Because I went, I thought I was going there to give to them. And I thought, man, I need to go back, get another blessing. You know, can I use you while you're dying or, you know, (laughs) it's neat. It's neat. There's this odd principle that the world doesn't want you to remember, wants you to forget. And that is you actually become blessed when you give. And you become hollow and empty as you keep. But the world says, keep, keep, keep. 
And people grow more and more hollow and empty. And then they try to fill up their hollowness and their emptiness with stuff. And they just become more hollow and empty. But you know, the big thing here is motive. Motive is everything. What is the difference between greed and covetous and the godly attributes of being diligent, laboring hard, working hard, planning, being shrewd, being a wise business person and accumulating great wealth? What is the difference? Motive. That's all motive and attitude. Why are you doing what you're doing? That is the only thing that separates the sin from the godly attribute. You can do the same actions. One, do it for the glory of God. Another, do it for self. One is sin. One is righteousness. Look at the end of verse 15. Jesus wants everybody to know this. So he he says, for not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. And there are so many people who think their life consists of their possessions. It is a lie, a lie. You know, you think about all the rich people in society. Think about the people on the covers of all the magazines. Think of how many of those people are happy and glad and full of peace and joy who go home to wives who just love them to death and sit down at the dinner table with their wonderful children and laugh and eat dinner and have a great time. (laughs) I'm telling you, all their riches won't give them that. You could be dirt poor, have all that. But riches can't do it for you. You can have all the cars and stuff. Man, you have a miserable wife. You have a miserable life. That's what I tell guys. Happy wife, happy life. (laughs) Unhappy wife, unhappy life. But knowing God and walking with God and honoring God with your life, with your time, with your resources, this is what brings joy to know that you can just bless people. You can bless people with what God gives you. You can build up treasure in heaven. You can advance the kingdom of God by helping people come to Christ and discipling them in the Lord. And when you get to heaven, those people and the godly character that they gained here on earth will go with them to heaven. And that's all. Everything else is left behind. Many of the rich and famous are just whitewashed tombs. You know, their eyes are bulging for fatness and their the imagination of their hearts run riot. But inside, they're just hollow. They're empty. They're miserable. They get up. They go through the motion. They stay busy so they don't have to keep their mind on reality. They just distract themselves with their labors, with their pursuits. Why? Because they don't want to think about reality, that there is a God and that all the stuff they've accumulated is not going to go with them. Thomas Watson said, people degrade their souls to set the world above their souls who pant after the dust of the earth. Amos 2, 7, as if a man were Man's house were on fire and he should take care to preserve the lumber, but let his child be burnt on the fire. That's how it is, man. We're preserving lumber. When we think that the meaning of life is stuff rather than glorifying God and blessing people with that stuff. Jesus says, not even when you're not, not even when you have an abundance, does your life consist of your possessions? We just need to let that soak in. Secondly, Beware of a selfish, hoarding, stingy mentality. This is an amazing parable because the, he says he told, tells them a parable. Look at verse 16. He tells them a parable, says the land of a rich man was very productive. Now, notice, notice the selfishness here. See if you can see it. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you see that you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease and eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool this very night. Your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Did you notice that in three verses? There's six eyes and five minds. 
That is amazing. It's hard to put any more in three verses. That is incredible. He's talking to himself. He's reasoning to himself about I, me, and my. It's all about himself. His whole world is about him accumulating stuff. He's selfish. He's greedy. He's hoarding. His God was self. A while back in this key social issues class, we did a lesson called having Jesus as your boss. And in that lesson, you can look at it online if you really want to be convicted. We look at the Puritan mindset for work and man, painful. The Puritans would say things like, well, everybody knows that the purpose of working is to give God glory. And the second purpose for working is to be a benefit to society. And that's why we work. And that's why we work hard. Now, how many people, if you just, you know, went to the mall and did interviews, tell me the two purposes of working. How long would you have to ask people before they gave you that answer? You would die at the mall. (laughs) You would never get there because people don't work for that reason anymore. They work so they can get money so they can buy stuff. And think about how that would transform our country. If everybody in the United States started working for the glory of God and for the benefit of society, you dig a trench, you dig it straight because you're doing it for God's glory. You're working. You're not being lazy because you're working hard for God's glory. You're excelling to be excellent for God's glory. You're excelling to be excellent so you can have a good product to bless other people. Everything you do is excellence, the glory of God, the benefit of society. Those are godly motives for working hard. This man does not have them in the parable. And look at verse 16. I mean, the the picture he paints of the guy is amazing. The land of a rich man was very productive. Notice he's already got land and he's already rich. It's not that he's starving and he's trying to get ahead. He's already rich. He already has land and he not only has land, it's very productive land. So it is, he's already rich and his very productive land keeps on producing. The problem is he then says, He's got a problem. Verse 17, he reasons to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Yes, he does. He said, what are you talking about? Look at verse 18. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tell down my barns. You wonder why that big barn was up there earlier? Now you know. <laughs> the, the, guy, the guy doesn't need a barn. He's already got barns. And now he's going to tear down those barns and build bigger barns. To store all of his goods. You know, and this is kind of the American mindset. And and I and again, the problem is not the man's barn or barns. The man doesn't have a storage problem. It's not that he has great wealth. The problem is for himself. For himself. A self-centered life. Now, many Americans, you know, they struggle by, they get a house. As soon as their kids move out, they realize, okay, we've got some more money. Let's get a bigger house now that they're gone. So they get a bigger house. And then, you know, it's got the triple car garage. They fill it up with stuff and park in the driveway. They can't pull it in the garage. I mean, you know. And then they get a storage facility. And then two... So they can keep all their stuff. Why? They're saving it. Why? They might need it someday. They're saying to themselves, soul, now you have many goods laid up. To co-. It's a mindset. Now, don't get me wrong. It's okay to have the big house. It's okay to have the triple car garage full of stuff and three storage places filled up with stuff. That's not the issue. The problem is greed here. You can still have all that stuff and be right with God. And you can have that stuff and not be right with God. The man in the parable is not right with God. Because he's hoarding his stuff for himself. For I, me, my. Look at verse 18. What shall I do? I will tell it on my barns. I will build bigger ones. There I will store all my goods. 
Now, is that his problem? No. You know, the Bible tells us that we are to save. That we should anticipate things, that we should put money away. I read Proverbs 6, 1 through 11. Observe the ant, O sluggard. You know, they're little folk and they march in rank and, and they, you know, work hard in the summer and store for the winter. That's good. That's wisdom. That's wise. That's great. You know, you should realize that there's probably going to be a day in your life when you're not going to be able to work and produce. And so you might want to provide for yourself so as not to be a burden on society or your, your, your children. I mean, uh, Paul says in Corinthians, it's the responsibility of parents to lay up for children, not children for parents. That's fine that the scriptures teach about, about saving and being a wife steward. We're not talking about vows of poverty here. We're not talking about even the quantity of stuff you have or don't have. We're talking about selfishness. We're talking about greed. Look at verse 19. The man says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Have you ever heard that thing? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But this guy's got it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we live. He doesn't even see his mortality. He's got two problems here, two sinful attitudes here. One is he's presuming that he's going to live many years. But worse than that is he's speaking to to what? His soul. Now, let me ask you, can you take care of your spiritual soul? With things. New. New. There is only one thing that will take care of your soul, and that is Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Jesus rescues souls from hell. No amount of money, no amount of good works, no amount of things can purchase your freedom from God's justice. You can't redeem yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't buy God off. You either run to Jesus and get saved and get forgiveness and get justified because you've placed your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, or you perish. And that's it. No amount of money will do it. Look at the middle of verse 19. Notice the man's presumptuous soul. You have many goods laid up for many years to come. He's thinking he's got many years to come. Proverbs 27 one says, don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. James says something very similar in James 4 verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will have we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him that is sin. Now, what is the right thing to do? The right thing to do is realize you could live only for a few moments before you drop dead. And that you could die at any time. And that when you die, whether it be in a few moments or in 50 years that you need to make sure that when you die, you're ready to die because you've lived for the glory of God. You've used your things for the glory of God. Jesus clarifies why this man is such a fool when he says in verse 20, this very night your soul is required of you and who will own what you have prepared. He calls the man a fool. You know, the guy's a moron, really, is what it is in the Greek. He's a fool. Why? Because he's going to die now, and all his huge new barns, they're just, he's sitting on his easy chair on his front porch of his mansion, looking out at his two, three, or ten giant barns, and they're just putting the last coat of red paint on him. Takes a deep breath, and wham, heart attack hits. Now he's in eternity. Never got to enjoy him. Who gets him? Doesn't matter to him. He's got bigger problems. Solomon, arguably the richest man who ever lived, said this in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. I love this. Thus, Solomon says, here's Mr. Wealth. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. Why is that, Solomon? He tells us, for I must leave it to a man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. That he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. I mean, think about it. You labor, you strive, you get this huge amount of wealth. And all of a sudden you drop dead of a heart attack and some foolish son squanders it in a weekend at Vegas. That's what that's what he's saying. You only have control of your stuff right now. You don't even have guarantee you have control over it tomorrow unless there's one way that you can have control over your stuff to a degree later. And that's if you write a will or have a trust. We talked about this in the prepared to die class. You know, I was, let's just say, you know, you have a house in Burbank, which is just your average house. I mean, almost any house here is, you know, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. And by the end of your life, it's paid for. That's a pretty big chunk of change. What are you going to do with that? Well, if you don't do anything, just die and let things go into probate or whatever, then the government's going to take about a third of that or half of that. And they're going to be glad that you didn't have a will, especially that you didn't have a trust. If you had one of them, then they don't get any. Now, you need to ask yourself, do I want to give, you know, nearly half of everything I leave behind to the government? Or maybe I could give that to the Lord's work. Think about it. Pray about it. Um, And these are the kind of decisions you can make while you're alive. You can decide what you're going to do. You know, people say, you know, should I I leave some for my kids? Do whatever you want. It's yours. Do whatever you want. But, you know, should I just plop down? I've got two kids. You know, should I give them each, you know, $400,000? I wouldn't. You have somebody who's kind of squeaking by and doesn't have much money. You give them a huge chunk of cash. What, you, what does it usually do to them? Destroys them. Destroys them. You give them a really big chunk, chunk of cash, you can really destroy them. You know, and in three years, they're trying to get over their drug addiction and they're just destruction. I mean, you look at different people, you know, rock stars, they have one one album and sells you know millions of copies and then you never hear from again they just destroy themselves you look at you know different people who make it rich in the movies or entertainment or whatever somebody wins a sweepstakes or something they just like disappear off the face of the planet can't handle it so what do you do well there's all kinds of things you do you know to investigate do things like this well you know when my kid gets to be 25 years old whatever they make for five years in a row, I'll match it out of the inheritance. After that, the rest goes to the ministry. Now, what do you think that would do? That put a fire under them. <laughs> if I could make 30000 I could get 60000 that year. If I could make sixty, I could get 120. If I could make a hundred, I could do. See, there you go. But don't, don't just let your resources just go into the hands of a fool. And squander all of your heart. You can use it for the Lord today if you make plans today. But tomorrow is always uncertain. Well, the man was foolish because he had all this money, all this wealth. And what was his huge problem? Fourth point. We need to be rich towards God. Look at verse 21. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The problem wasn't that he laid up treasure. We've already said that. The problem was that he did it for who? For himself and that he wasn't rich toward God. The scriptures tell you to save and be rich towards God. Now, does that mean you need to get everything? No. But the formula for death is to lay up treasure for yourself and not be rich towards God. We are to do everything for the glory of God. So let's just say, you know, you're a college student or young married. You're scraping by living from month to month. Well, you're going to give just a little bit faithfully. Decide how much that is and just be faithful. You might not be able to get, you know, go to Starbucks quite as often or you might have to give up three Starbucks a month. That would be like torture. Or maybe give up a few music downloads or a few times eating out just so you can give faithfully to the Lord, whatever that might be. 
And then as you, as God blesses you, you consider more. And so that as you grow in your walk with the Lord, as you grow in your marriage, as you grow in your life, as you grow in your resources, you're constantly being rich towards God. You're giving some to the church, maybe supporting some favorite missionaries, maybe having some to bless people with anonymously. Just give. You don't simply go, well, what if you don't get a tax write-off? Yeah. What are you going to get in heaven, though? I want you to know, better than tax write-off is reward from God. So use your wealth now. Be rich towards God now. J.C. Ryle asked and answered the question, when can it be said a person of a person that he is rich towards God? Never until he is rich in grace and rich in faith and rich in good works. Never until he has gone to Jesus Christ and bought from him gold that has been tested in the fire. Never until he has a house not made with hands, but an eternal house in the heavens. Such a person is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His inheritance does not appear, dis- disappear. Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it from our hands. All things are his already. And best of all, what he has now is nothing compared to what he will have hereafter. End quote. You use your resources now to win people to Christ and disciple them in the Lord. Those people are going to be your treasure in heaven for all eternity. Nothing else will you be able to take with you? Nothing else. And so what you need to do as you leave here today, beware of sinning to get what you want. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Beware of selfish, greedy, hoarding, stingy mentality that has no desire to bless God, no desire to bless others. Finally, be rich towards God. If you're rich towards God, then do anything you want with what he has given you, be thankful, be glad, enjoy it as long as it fits within the parameters of scripture. Be rich, have the 15 houses, just be rich towards God. Linsky, a commentator, said this, the parable of the rich fool is a painting painted by the master painter. At the bottom of the painting, Jesus now signs the man's name. Look closely to see if that name is perhaps your name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for Jesus' teaching. Help us not to be foolish, Father. Help us not to be deceived. Help us to beware, to be on guard against every form of greed. Help us also, Father, not to feel guilty about riches, wealth, things, pleasures that fit within the boundaries of your word. Help us to enjoy them to the fullness and praise you for them, but help us also to share them with others. And Father, help us to be rich towards you, to support your work, your ministry, your missionaries. Father, your spreading of your kingdom through the preaching of your gospel. Help us to invest our time in other people that they might grow in righteousness so that when we get to heaven, we will have treasure there. No, not the wealth of the things that we accumulated here on earth, but those people and how we invested in them. Father, I just pray that if somebody here realizes that they don't know you, they've never given their life to Christ, they aren't rich towards you, I pray that this morning they would confess their sin, they would repent, they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection to save them. And that in trusting in Christ and receiving Christ as their savior, you would change them and transform them and help them to become rich towards you. May that be all of our prayers and may that be all of our experiences for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.